Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Jesus' closing words of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is God's word. You can be seated. So if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Glad that you're here. Uh, We are currently teaching through Jesus' most famous teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Now, contrary to what some people think about this sermon, it's not teaching people how to get into heaven. It's also not teaching people just how to have um, a utopian society. Many people approach it like that. Like, we can just... uh, do these things, and we can kind of bring a a sort of heaven on earth. Uh, This is what Gandhi thought about the Sermon on the Mount, and he practiced the Sermon on the Mount himself, not being a Christian or a follower of Jesus. So there's many wrong views, I think, of this sermon. But the Bible tells us clearly that entrance into God's kingdom is an act sheerly of God's goodness, of his mercy, and of his grace. Contrary to what many people think, the Bible is not a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. It is literally God's manual for flourishing. It is God's word from heaven to tell us this is what life was meant to be. And this is the, life, the way life will be. If you look even at the two bookends of the Bible, we find in the beginning, we find a garden where humanity is there and they are flourishing. They have no lack, no want. It says that the man and the woman, their husband and wife, they are naked, but there is no shame. There's nothing to hide. They are totally open and vulnerable with one another. They are at peace and harmony. And when we come to the very end of the book, and man, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in between that, of course. But when we come to the very end of the book, this is what we find again. We find, again, the tree of life. And we find that humanity is once again dwelling in harmony and peace. Humanity is flourishing because God is king. God is in his rightful place. And humanity is flourishing under him. And this really is the message of the Bible. God wants your flourishing. God wants your flourishing so much that he came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and he bore all the brokenness, all the wrongdoing that we've done to one another, all the wrong that is done to us. He bore all that, the Bible says, on the cross. It was there that God poured out his judgment on sin. Jesus bore it all for us so that anyone who hears the call of God can respond and can enter into God's kingdom, God's way of flourishing that starts now and will continue into eternal life. That is the offer of the Bible. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The sermon 
I know where I am. The sermon is also not teaching us how we stay in the kingdom of God. Um, many people approach it this way. Like, this is kind of the Christian rule book, and if you do these things, you're in. You do these things, you are out. Uh, rather, the sermon is a description of the character and conduct of those who already belong to God's kingdom. Cool, you've responded to God's call. His offer of salvation is offered to be a kingdom citizen. This is how we do it in the kingdom of God. This is how we live. This is our code of conduct. The sermon isn't a call to repentance, though that may be involved um, as we go through it and we examine our lives. It is a description of the expression and evidences of true repentance. This is what it looks like to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Now, this sermon has been used for centuries to shape and form God's people into the way of Jesus. And we believe at Refuge that this is what God is doing as we've been going through this sermon as well. Now, we've come to the last section of the Sermon on the Mount, and this is actually my last time teaching it. And so I'm, every time I do this, I'm, it's totally bittersweet. I'm like so relieved to be done with it. Like, oh, I made it. Oh, my gosh. I thought it was going to ruin me. You know, I thought I was going to mess up and blow it, and the church was going to close. And um, I don't know why I think that. I just do. Like, I just go to the worst-case scenario. Um, but we made it. But then there's this other side of me that, it's sad. This sermon is so powerful. It's so life-changing. It's this, this beautiful vision that Jesus has. So this is my last time teaching. Nikolai will close it next week. My family and I will be out of town. All that to say. I love what Matthew does here at the end of the sermon. The teachings of the sermon are finished. This is Jesus' last bit as he closes up the sermon. But the, the sermon really ended In verse 12, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is Jesus' summary of his teaching, the summary of the Sermon on the Mount. And then from there on out, Jesus, I think, is just giving us a moment to allow this to soak in, allow it to set in. I mean, we, we've been going through this for, I, I've taught 17 messages through the Sermon on the Mount, and that's not including what Nikolai's done. Jesus probably taught this in an hour, right? So you just think about how good it is to take these life-changing truth and just to sit with them. And I've been really thankful to be able to do that here on Sundays, to take these small sections, to stop and think through at a heart level all that Jesus has said, all that he's taught about what it means to be his true followers, what it means to really be a Christian, because there's a lot of different views about that in our day and age. And now every time I hear the word evangelical, I just cringe. My skin crawls. Because what is pumped out in the media is nothing like what a true believer and a true follower of Jesus is. And we've been seeing that here. And so this is good for us to sit with it, to reflect upon our own lives and ask that question, are we really following Jesus? Are we following a Jesus of our own making? Have we done the Thomas Jefferson thing of ripping out the things in the Bible, ignoring the things that, we, that just don't sit right with us, make us uncomfortable? Maybe things about sexual morality. Maybe things about equality, whether that's racial equality or male, female. Things that don't sit right with us, we just ignore those things, we de-emphasize those things. Warnings from Jesus, we de-emphasize those things, but we emphasize 
the love and the grace and all this. I think Jesus' words here, his heavy words, cause us to let it all sit together. Are we those that will take Jesus seriously? That will hear his word and put it into practice. So Jesus closes the sermon with a parable about two kinds of people. Two kinds of builders, really. A wise person or wise builder. And a foolish person or a foolish builder. And this is very typical of wisdom teaching. There's two kinds of people. There's two kinds of paths. There's two kinds of ways. There's one of darkness. There's one of light. There's the way of the serpent. And there's the way of Yahweh. And we find this all throughout the scriptures. And Jesus ends this great sermon with this incredible contrast. Light, darkness, the, the dark path, the, narrow, or the wide path, the narrow way. The good tree, the bad tree. The wise builder, the foolish builder. In Jesus' estimation, and I know life is more nuanced than this oftentimes, but this is the way wisdom literature works. But in Jesus' estimation, you are either a wise person or you are a fool. There is no in-between. Only two categories. And so the question I pose to us this morning is, who are we? Who am I in the core of my being? Who am I really? And that's what Jesus' sermon in the end is really all about. Who are we at the heart level? Not what do we say, what do we profess with our mouths, not even what do we do, what do we practice, but as a whole person, who are we? So Jesus first talks about the wise one. So he says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine. So the question I think we should ask first is, what is Jesus referring to, these words of mine? Well, Jesus doesn't say my teaching as a whole. And I think that's actually really important. Because Jesus taught a lot of things. And what this does for us is it really focuses in on what it means to be a Jesus follower. What does it mean to be a Jesus follower? It is specifically to practice these words. These words. And remember, we've been talking about this. There is, there is so much to what it means to be a Jesus follower, to be a Christian. But really, when it comes down to it, it is someone who has experienced the love of God at the heart level, and it has changed them from the inside out. It, or is changing them from the inside out. That is the number one thing that God cares about. We've been seeing this all throughout the sermon, right? You've got the Pharisees, and they do the right thing. They say the right thing. They give alms. They do charity. They fast. They pray. They do all the right things, but they do them for the wrong reasons. The heart is not right. And this is really, the Sermon on the Mount is a hard examination. I mean, that's really what it is. So Jesus says, 
everyone who hears these words of mine. And so I see this as Jesus' final call to build a kingdom of heaven culture wherever this sermon is heard. Whoever we are, wherever we are, it is a summons to put into practice in everyday life the upside-down kingdom of God. The kingdom that is merciful. The kingdom that is righteous. Not righteous is the way that we often talk about it. Holiness, this pious thing, but a conviction to do the right thing. To be in right relationship with people. A a longing for justice to be done in the world. A kingdom of mercy, righteousness, justice, graciousness, forgiveness. These are the characteristics of the kingdom of God. I love the way Eugene Peterson describes what the church is called to be. He says, the call on the church is to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. We are to cultivate the life of God in our midst. We're an outpost of the kingdom of God. So that when people come in our midst, and we're not just talking about this building, 791 Lombardi Court, but we're talking about when people step into this community, whether it's three or four of us or it's the whole of us, that they have experienced a countercultural way of life. It is totally flipped upside down from what they're used to, from the way the world works. Jesus' call is not to simply hear and agree, but to do and practice what he has taught. And Jesus refers then to the one who hears and does these words as a wise person. And again, this is um, Greek wisdom teaching. The term is phronimus. And listen to this. The phronimus one has learned through practice to live prudently or wisely with discernment and one who not only knows the truth but acts upon it. The wise one is someone who through practice has learned to live prudently. Remember we were talking about this last week. It is first by practice, then by habit, then by character. This is the call to every single one of us. We have received free Entrance into the kingdom of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now he says, become what I purchased you to be through the hard work of sanctification by putting off those normal ways of thinking, those normal motives for living, those normal desires. Remember the the scripture describes it like this, the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Put all of that to death and put on God's desires, God's way of thinking, God's way of acting, God's way of seeing people. And we see this ultimately displayed in the cross. See, on the cross, irregardless of who you are, Jesus died for you. Like the father that Jesus describes here in the sermon, he loves all indiscriminately and causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, the deserving and the undeserving. God is generous to the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And this is what he wants to do in your heart as well. To take away that discrimination and to make you into someone who loves 
the way that he loves. But this comes by practice. I, honestly, you guys, on my way here this morning, all I wanted to do was tune out. That's all I wanted to do. I was driving from home. My house was crazy this morning. My, my kids have been crazy for like the last month. I don't know what's happening. It's something in the water. <clears throat> and maybe, maybe it's something in your water as well, right? But just there's this, this morning, getting in my car, I was just like, Ugh. like, I'm just frustrated. I'm just tired. And everything in me just wanted to just be, just to sit in that just to kind of let it marinate. And I had to choose to say, God, this is not the way I want to be. This is not how I want to feel towards my children. This is not how you feel towards my children. This is not who I want to be. And I'm going to go this morning and I'm going to teach your word and I'm going to sing songs of worship and praise. This is not who I want to be. I want to be that man who believes you, who trusts you. I want to be that man who practices your character. And so I had to do this work in the car on the way here of putting off my way of thinking about my children, my way of feeling about my children, and put on God's heart towards my children. See, we, we have to do it in the most monotonous, just the, the itty-gritty everyday parts of life. Put off. The old man, the old woman, the old way of thinking, and put on God's tender mercies is actually what Paul says at one point in time. Put on God's tender mercy. And this is the work of character shaping. This is the work of virtue that God has called us to do, kingdom virtues. And so Jesus says, whoever practices this sermon makes this the vision for their life, their, their call to action, their manifesto, if you will. This person is like a wise builder who built his house on the rock. And when the storm and the flood came, it didn't fall. It didn't crumble. It wasn't wiped away, but it stood firm because it was founded on the rock. Now, we know this, but everyone is building their life or their house, to use Jesus' metaphor, on something. Maybe it's a career. <clears throat> Maybe it's your family, a certain way of being as a family, certain representation, certain family values. Every one of us has a vision. We talk about this all the time here at Refuge. Maybe it's Silicon Valley that it's shaping that. You know, it's, you know, you are constantly keeping up with Apple and you've got all the gadgets and you want to be like cutting edge and all this. Maybe for some of you it is, you know, the Etsy, Instagram, what's it, Pinterest. It's like... Everything that's there, that's who I want to be. And, you know, we do this. We project our lives the way we want people to view us on social media. But we have some ideal, some way of living, some vision. James K.A. Smith calls it, every sing he says, every single one of us suits up each day for the Arthurian quest. We're searching for the Holy Grail. 
It's, it's, it's varied what we're getting up for, what we're suiting up for, what we're going into battle for, what we're fighting for, what we're striving for. But every single one of us is doing it. Something you believe to be true, something you believe to be stable, something that will keep you when the stock market crashes, when everybody else's marriage falls apart, your marriage will stay intact, or whatever that might be. And what Jesus does here is radical. He says, if your foundation is not on my words, it will crumble. It will fail. It will not last the storms of this life, the trials, the hardships, the troubles of this life, just the everyday crap that happens on planet Earth. And it definitely will not withstand the last day, the final day, when God reconciles all things. So the question from Jesus is, what are you building your life on? Whose vision is shaping your life? And of course, it's, it's pretty easy to figure that out, right? Where do you spend your time, money, and your emotions? Usually that's it. And we've, we've all heard this. This is nothing new. But again, Jesus says that he, his words, his kingdom vision is the only staple and true foundation against the storms and final storm of this life. So Jesus gives this parable, right, of a house withstanding the storm because of a strong foundation. And as I was studying this, my mind immediately went to the language of Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1, we read about the flourishing person. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Greek, makarios. The makarios are blessed person. And this has been Jesus' main theme, right? The flourishing people, the flourishing people, the flourishing people are merciful. The flourishing people are meek. The flourishing people are forgiving. The flourishing people are peacemakers. And here in Psalm 1, the psalmist says the flourishing one is the one who meditates on Yahweh's law day and night. So Jesus here says the flourishing one is the one who meditates on the Sermon on the Mount day and night. If you will, I think Jesus is adding to Psalm 1. Or I think he's re um, reinterpreting Psalm 1 for us. Now that the king is here, take this vision and implement this vision. Sorry, I'm kind of on a rabbit trail here. But remember, the words that it describes are, he or she shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that yields fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do, prospers. So this person, like the person in Jesus' parable, is unaffected by the droughts and hard times of life because they are rooted by a source of life, living water. And so Jesus employs the same picture here, telling us if we build our lives on his words taught in this great sermon, we will experience a human flourishing that can withstand the storms of this life, even the final storm, the great judgment that is coming upon all humanity. And with Jesus' closing parable, you can really begin to see how this whole sermon is a summon 
to live in light of the kingdom of God. And in light, it, a summon to live in light of the final day. The, ju- the judgment, as we often call it, I think that carries certain negative connotation oftentimes, and there is some of that to it. But the final day, remember in Scripture, is the day when God settles all accounts. Listen to the way that Samuel, or Samuel, the book of Samuel records it. Jesus is employing very fim- uh, similar biblical picture here. It says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, and let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are snapped, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to be hungry. The barren has borne seven children, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Why? Because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. That is judgment language, people. This is what it looks like when God finally will sit on his throne, when God becomes king, is that the poor are exalted. The meek inherit the earth. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake have a name with the mighty men and mighty women of God. That's what it looks like when God comes to town. It flips all of the the shame and honor of, of human culture on its head. And God puts people who in our esteem do not belong in authority, in, in a place of honor, he puts them at the top. And those who have ruled in cruelty, shrewdly, says they go to the bottom. That's what judgment day will look like. God will make all things right. Sally Lloyd-Jones, a favorite little Bible book for your kids, she says, Well, she takes it from Tolkien, actually. Everything sad will come untrue. What a great vision for that day. God will make everything wrong right and everything sad will come untrue. And God is calling us to look at the world around us, the world, the culture, the political climate that we are living in now. And he says, I know it's cutthroat. I know it's scary. I know, I know, I know, but I'm asking you to trust me. And I'm asking you to live in an upside down way, a way that doesn't make sense. A way that doesn't get the profit for the labor that you've sown in this life. I'm asking you to trust me. 
And what, what is our example of this? Of the upside down way of God? Well, we read in the, in the epistles, or, or you can read in the book of John. The cross, which is the most humiliating, shameful, brutal way to die, is the coronation of the King of Kings. It is there on the cross that Jesus Christ is high and lifted up, that we see the glory of who God really is, that he is the high and exalted one, but he is also the one who dwells with the lowly. He is the one who takes upon himself the cause of the needy and the poor. And we see the ultimate display of greatness, of power and authority. And it says that there in Colossians, it says there on the cross, Jesus, through his humiliation, through his gruesome and awful death, he made a mockery of the demonic powers, of the way of the serpent, the cutthroat way of the serpent. He turned it all on its head. He turned evil in on itself. He triumphed through weakness. He triumphed through humility. He triumphed through self-sacrificial love. And he rose triumphant from the grave. You know, the early church fathers had a way of talking about this. They said, the Christian is called to the cruciform life. A life that is shaped by the cross. A life that is shaped by the humility and the brokenness of the cross. God's upside down way. That is the way that we are to be shaping our lives. That is the way that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. I know I've been referring to it, but let me just read again from Matthew 5. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are the meek. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Flourishing are the merciful. Flourishing are the pure in heart. Flourishing are the peacemakers. Flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Flourishing are those who are reviled and persecuted and who are talked about behind their back and they're accused of all sorts of evil falsely. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. See, what's, what, we all know this. What's wrong with the church is we have an a, a apathetic heart, apathetic vision of the kingdom of God, of God's way. God's way is the most radical way to live. I, a few years ago, pastoring, there was a guy that came to our church, and he was a punk rocker back in the you know, late 70s, early 80s. And I think he had grown up yeah, he'd grown up in a Christian home and rebelled and, you know, boomed to Berkeley, did the whole punk rock thing, right, Gilman Street and all this. And he said, just as he's getting older and watching things change in the world, he just came to himself one day and said, I realize the most punk rock thing I could ever do is follow Jesus. This is the most countercultural, backwards way to live is to follow Jesus and to give my allegiance to the kingdom of God. And it is absolutely true. And when we do this, church, it radically shapes and forms our desires. And it will radically shine God's 
light into the world. Jesus says a, a city that cannot be hidden. That's what this kingdom people are. A city that cannot be hidden. Salt that cannot not do what it does. Which is flavor and which is to preserve. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. To live out this kingdom. Now, again, back to judgment language. Because I got lost there for a minute. But going back to Samuel and this idea here of that last day, of withstanding that last day, you know, for too long, the shrewd and powerful have ruled with cruelty over God's earth, with unrighteousness, with injustice, with force, on pain of death. And one day, the true king will return to rule and reign in righteousness and justice, and he will restore and redeem. He will make all things new. And this is what Jesus is saying. I'm here I am here, and that is all happening. The last days begin. The clock started when Jesus Christ touched down on this earth. And now God's new world, his kingdom, is coming into being. It, it's like if you're a literary person and you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. That, should all, that idea should always be in the back of our minds. The king is on the move. The kingdom of God is coming. It is at work. It is on the move. And once you realize that, you'll see that Jesus is calling us to the habits of heart which anticipate that new world in the here and now. These qualities of heart, uh, purity of heart, mercy, meekness, forgiveness, love, and so on. Remember, these are the ways of God's kingdom. This is the language that they speak in the kingdom of God, and God is calling us to learn it now for that day. These are not rules of conduct now that you've become a Christian. That's not really the way we should view it. They are signs of life, the language of the life of the kingdom, the language of the life of new creation, the life which Jesus came to bring. Hands down, this is my favorite quote from this whole series. You ready for this? Jehoiachim Jeremiah, I probably quoted it 30 times. What Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of the disciples, and it's not intended to be. Rather, what is taught here are symptoms, signs, and examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You yourselves should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. So church, that is the call from this sermon. Now, that's the positive call. There's also a negative. So let's look at that before we close. Let's end on a low note, right? Everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, I am not a builder. You could ask my wife. Um, I've never contracted a house or building of any sorts. And I know 
you can't build a, a thing on sand. I've been to the beach, right? I grew up at the beach. I know what happens when you build something on sand. It doesn't take a genius. It is far from it, right? Anybody is like, yeah, duh, right? So what a fool this is. That's how foolish you are if you do not take Jesus' words and implement them, practice them, make them your vision of life. You are the foolish of fools. You're like somebody who built a building on sand. Now here's, I think, a very interesting part of this. This sermon is not comparing Christians with pagans. That's not what this is about. This is about followers of Jesus, as we call them Christians. This is comparing Christians and Christians, true Christians, and those who claim in word to be Christians. So the house that crashes is not the house of pagans that didn't or haven't heard Jesus' words. The house that crashes is the house of a Christian who finds Jesus' words important enough to hear, but not realistic enough to live. For such Christians, this Sermon on the Mount is not practical enough for the demands of modern life. For this cultural or political climate, it's too naive. Too naive for contemporary cutthroat life, too spiritual for modern causes, or just plain and simple too hard. Again, I think it begs the question, what kind of people will we be? Who are we? And I said this from the beginning, this sermon is so radical that most of Christians throughout the ages have been that last category. It's just too hard. We won't even pretend. It's just too hard. Nobody can really do this. This must be talking about the millennial reign. This must be talking about when Jesus is actually reigning on the throne because you could never do this. You could never live like this. You could never be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. You could never love people like this or be merciful in this kind of world. It's too naive. Jesus is asking us to take him seriously and to not simply dismiss his teaching as too hard, too difficult. A moment ago I said, we're all building our lives on something. If we think about this, to not do Jesus' words is to do a great deal of something else. It is to build your life on the sand of a perishable human philosophy. Remember that story in Daniel about this great image? When it's interpreted for Daniel, we're told that the, the different metals that make up this image represent all the great kingdoms of the world. And as this image is majestic, it's ginormous, right? As it's standing tall and proud, it says that all of a sudden there's this rock that isn't made by hands. It just comes out of nowhere, and it slams into this image. 
and it hits it so hard and with such force that it crushes it completely to powder. And it says that all of a sudden the wind picks up and the powder is driven away. And no one ever remembers that the image was there. This is a picture of what it means to live your life, hitch your trailer to any political camp, any kingdom on earth, any human philosophy other than the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. It will disappear. It will be forgotten, never remembered, but the kingdom of God and the least in the kingdom of God will be remembered forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Their name will go down in the annals of history as the great ones. See, to, do, to not do Jesus' words is to build your life, to give great effort to build your life on something else. And that's something else Jesus swears will not stand the test of time. It will not stand that crushing of the rock on that day. This comes from Frederick Dale Bruner. I thought this was fascinating. It, it doesn't work in ESV, so I apologize. I just realized that this morning. But I think it's in the New King James. The last word of this sermon is the word great. Interesting. He says, it would seem that Jesus' whole sermon is a critique on what humans see as true greatness. The quest for greatness rather than true righteousness, for the sensational rather than the simple, for doing the charismatic rather than the moral, for speaking prophetically rather than compassionately, for being up to date at all costs rather than faithful to Jesus in all cases. This is a quest that will end only in a different kind of great, a great crash. Everyone is building their life on something, and Jesus says that his words, his kingdom vision, is the only stable and true foundation against the storms and final storm of this life. Will you believe him, church? Jesus' follower, will you take the words of the master seriously? Will you shape and build your life on them? Isn't it interesting that the apostles recognize this authority, power in Jesus' words? Where else can we go? Now, Jesus, you haven't figured out everything for us. I'll say that personally. Jesus hasn't told me all the answers to life. I haven't figured out life completely. But this is what the disciples say, or the apostles say. Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have the words that will withstand the storms of this life. The words that will withstand that last day of life. Now, as we wrap this up, I know that this last part of Jesus' sermon may sound harsh to some. This is not the way I, end a ser- I would like to end a sermon. Right? I'm like, come on, Jesus, like, you know, take one out of the book. This isn't how you do it. Um, And maybe for some of you, it feels like typical moral teaching. Do the right thing, live the right way, because there is a reckoning. There's a day of judgment. Amen. You know, close the book, we're done. Can I just say that this is nothing like that? The Bible teaches that Jesus isn't just a moral teacher telling you how to get to heaven, but the creator of all things come to earth 
step down into humanity to redeem you, to make you into what God intended for us from the beginning, true flourishing. Life in all of its fullness. The creator knows how life works best, and guess what? You're made in his image and you're living in his world. So when you choose to go against that, you choose to go against the grain of who you are and the way the world actually works. This is Jesus' appeal to be on the right side of history, as we often say. The creator is giving you his vision for flourishing. True human wholeness, human flourishing, true happiness, however you want to say it, and obedience to Jesus are not mutually exclusive, but they are an indissoluble whole. And Jesus claims that that flourishing is a life that is lived in light of the kingdom of God. The kingdom that Jesus claims is here now and at work through him. And here's the question, who doesn't want the good life? Who doesn't want flourishing? Who doesn't want a foundation that can withstand the death of a child? The loss of a parent or a loved one? The losing of one's career? A tragedy that will hit your life? It was totally unplanned for and unexpected. Who doesn't want a foundation to withstand that? And Jesus is offering this. Freely, build your life on me, he says. It's offered to us here today in receiving the kingdom offered and in practicing the way of Jesus Let me just say this, you'll never do it perfectly. No one ever has except for Jesus. But Jesus did it perfectly and he simply calls us to follow him. Last thing I'll say, promise. Closing words in the Sermon on the Mount, here they are. The commands of the New Testament, and specifically the Sermon on the Mount, are not so much telling us to do something, but they're inviting us to be something. Through the work of the true king, through his life, death, and resurrection, and by the giving of his spirit in us, we are to become fully human. Those who reflect the image of our Father in heaven, who is gracious to all, who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, we're called to be those who love our enemies, who bless those who curse us, who go the second mile, who tell the truth, who are faithful in all that we do because it's just the kind of people we are. It's the kind of people we have become through the spirit of God and the practice of the way of Jesus. That's God's vision for our lives. Church, refuge, this is the vision for the church. This is the vision for the people of God and this is the vision for Refuge Christian Fellowship that we are going to put this into practice that we are going to treat one another according to the vision of the Sermon on the Mount and that this will overflow into our city and into our community and we will be salt and light in this community and people will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So for our Father in heaven, Lord, we ask for that, Lord, that your name would be lifted up 
through your church, Lord, through our words of compassion and kindness, Lord, through our deeds of mercy and love, that who you really are would be put on display for the city of Santa Rosa and the county of Sonoma to see. Lord, we ask that your kingdom agenda would be done in this county as it is in heaven. Lord, that your church would practice the upside down way of Jesus. Lord, that meekness, mercy, compassion, love, forgiveness would be the virtues of the people of God. And not judgmentalism, self-righteousness, form and shape us to be your kingdom people. Lord, in your gracious love, give us the things that we need. Daily provisions, daily grace. Lord, do forgive us because we get it wrong. And often, Lord, we follow the old way, self-preservation and self-righteousness rather than humility and selflessness. And so, Lord, forgive us as we also forgive those who sin against us. And, Lord, preserve us in temptation and the trials and hardships of this life. Deliver us, O God. Preserve us for your will and for your kingdom. For Jesus, yours is the name that is above every name. Yours is the kingdom that is everlasting. Yours is the true power in the universe. And we recognize that. Help us to simply follow you, we pray. Amen.